Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordot. Today's show, we are discussing emotional intelligence and its relevance to outdoor activities. Outdoor literature and lore are full of epic stories and tragedies caused by poor decision-making, many times due to lack of the traits associated with emotional intelligence. How do we improve our social skills to have successful outings? Dave McGivern, Betsy Young, and Bill Billmeyer join me to discuss this important and fascinating subject. On this Outdoor Explorer, we are discussing emotional intelligence. I'm very happy to have Dave McGivern, Professor Emeritus at Alaska Pacific University, and Betsy Young and Bill Billmeyer. Bill and Betsy live off the grid in Alaska and have worked for years in risk management in the outdoor industry. Welcome to the show. Hello, it's good to be here. Thanks, Paul. Really nice to be here. Dave, why don't you... Yeah, Dave, why don't you start um, us off by discussing and telling us a bit about emotional intelligence. Okay, I'm going to run through what EI is, how it works, where it came from, and what its broader applications are in society. I'm going to try and be brief so that we can get to Bill and Betsy uh, very quickly. First of all, I'm going to borrow a definition from Michael Gosling, who's an EI researcher. He defines emotional intelligence as the capacity to reason with your emotions and the emotions of others. And the reason he says that's important is because the way we see things is not always the way other people see them. And I think Betsy will have more to say about this later. Um, Paul and Debayango uh, discussed how the brain works last month. And I would encourage, uh, if anybody likes this show, they need to go back and watch that one. Um, I'll be brief here. The amygdala filters all of our emotions. And EI requires taking control of the emotions away from the amygdala so the neocortex can apply a more rational approach. So simply put, if you see a bear, everyone's urge is to turn around and run but we all know that's the wrong thing. We need to get control of that emotion so the neocortex can make a better decision about what to do. The um, EI first arrives in the academic literature at about 1990. And uh, recently it has been popularized by Daniel Goldman in a series of articles in the Harvard Business Review. Goldman says that emotional intelligence is characterized by four characteristics. Self-awareness, which is the ability to recognize your own feelings. Self-control, which is the ability to manage your own feelings. Relationship management, which is the ability to maintain mutually satisfying relationships. No easy undertaking, by the way. And uh, empathy, understanding and appreciating the emotions of other people. Now, um, I've got a list of examples of EI in the society that we live in, but um, I'm only gonna list two. And uh, I'll start first with the avalanche community because I wanna give credit to them for um, identifying the human factor as the uh, most significant factor, actually, 
in avalanche hazard evaluation. The, uh, I think that, um, Paul, I think that Jill Fredston and Doug Fessler first articulated the human factor and they placed it inside a triangle surrounded by the cognitive skills, you know, weather, terrain, snow morphology that are also important um, in, avalanche, in avalanche hazard evaluation. The point is that we don't need, the point is not that we don't need cognitive intelligence, but rather that emotional intelligence is just as important as cognitive skills. Um, in the avalanche community, the result of the human factor has been um, to uh, reduce the dependency on pit analysis, that's the cognitive skill, and focus more on decision-making, which is subject to human factor. Um, Eva Latusua, who's a significant uh, person in the avalanche community here in Alaska, likes to say that humans are the problem, but we're also the solution. And um, she told me that uh, avalanche training today encourages people to say, I made a mistake, which is a function of self-awareness and encourages everyone to frame their analysis of other people's mistakes by putting themselves in the avalanche victim's shoes. That's empathy. The um, second example that I have comes from the business community. And um, the uh, Goldman likes to say that you get hired for your high IQ and fired for your low IQ. I might substitute, uh, you get hired for your technical skills and fired for the inability to get along with everybody around you. The business community recognizes that uh, today, everybody works in teams. And so getting along is very important. And I would just like to add uh, parenthetically that Atul Gawande, who has written extensively about the medical community, um, also emphasizes that, hey, um, delivering medical, uh, you know, delivering medicine is the product of teamwork. It's not an individual person out there making decisions. And so um, empathy and relationship management are very important in the medical community as well. Now, back to the business community. Sorry about that deviation. I warned you that it might happen. Um, the, um, in, the, in the business community, after the Enron scandal, every business school in the nation required an ethics class. And um, in other words, uh, ethics, that's the exploration of morality is now part of a business education. So for example, with regard to Flint, Michigan and their water troubles, the problem is how do poor communities get quality drinking water? In other words, how do we manage our relationships with all the people in the community so they get all the services that they're entitled to? 
This isn't about, well, it is about understanding the cognitive part of water quality, but it's also understanding the emotional intelligence required to get the community clean water. Anyway, um, you know, that's my introduction to uh, emotional intelligence. Are there any questions about that at this point? So to, yeah, to paraphrase a little bit, Dave, uh, uh, Dave I, 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 so, uh, the, let's go back to the avalanche um, uh, example. I think when Doug and Jill first started, the focus was on the cognitive and the skills. Uh, they really looked at uh, you know, rescue skills and uh, snowpack analysis and terrain. And now I think that uh, we've really, the avalanche community has really uh, taken that uh, human factor which is a lot about the emotion, what we're talking about here today, and emphasize that instead. I think, is that a fair sort of example how that has evolved? Yeah, I took uh, four of Doug and Jill's level one. At the last one, they announced to the, they announced to the audience, we're hoping David can pass this time. <laughs> I'm sure you did. But, but really, um, but, uh, you know, their first approach, and I think it was everyone's approach across the community was what we needed was knowledge. And that's still true today. Uh, we do need knowledge. We need, um, you know, content for those cognitive skills. But uh, wrap that in uh, the human factor, that all of those cognitive understandings that are derived from, let's say, pit analysis, we filter through our um, emotional skills. And those are the skills that relate most to how are we gonna use that cognitive information that we have? So <clears throat> anyway, we owe Doug and Jill a great debt yeah. for the human factor. And, and in your notes, you sent me one of the things you talk about is know thyself. Um, you wanna talk about that for a minute? Yeah, the um, EI's actually been around for a long time. And uh, legend has it that it's chiseled in granite above uh, some Greek temple. And I don't, I don't doubt that for a minute. You know, the Greeks were, um, were, were great students of ethics and, uh, and they relied heavily on know thyself. Um, you know, I think in the outdoors, we could say know thyself or die, you know, something like that. Yeah, or end up on um, the front page. The, uh, I think that, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, end up in Craig Medrid writing about you. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, uh, Charles Darwin wrote about the emotions um, in the expression of emotions in man and animal in 1872. And the educator James Bloom in the 50s, you know, he wrote about the whole person. Um, how are we going to educate the cognitive, what he called the affective, and what he called the... Um, psychomotor domain. The, um, his affective is the birthplace of uh, emotional intelligence in the educational community. Unfortunately, you know, for Bloom and for other educators, the reliance was on the cognitive aspects of learning. It was on knowledge. But I think there's greater understanding across the community now that emotional intelligence is at least as important as um, cognitive understandings. Yeah, and that's, um, I think, an outdoors- Let's get to Betsy yeah. and hear her story. Yeah, so I was gonna take a little break. This is, um, 
Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordak, and we're on Alaska Public Media, and we're talking about uh, emotional intelligence in the outdoors. Uh, thanks, Dave, for going over that uh, brief summary of uh, emotional intelligence, and we'll have some links on our website uh, for people who want to learn more about it. Uh, Betsy, why don't we go next to you? Okay. Um, so uh, I come through uh, to into the risk management and the outdoors from a background in the guiding and guiding instructing all around the state for a bunch of different programs. And but the last uh, probably seven years at least, I've mostly been employed in the television industry. And um, so that's the the kind of the story that I'm going to tell comes from that. Um, it was a job that I did a, a, num a few years ago. And I, uh, a lot of these jobs, um, they can be pretty last minute. And this one I, I found out about a couple days ahead and I was on a plane uh, within a few days. Um, and I arrived down there, I meet a crew that I've never met before working for an employer I haven't worked for before. Um, so just to set the scene a little bit, um, these are, um, this show was a pilot. So they're kind of figuring out what they're doing as they go along. And we've got, uh, you know, cast members that they're working with and a crew. Um, in this case, uh, we were, uh, we, we went to uh, our, our first day. Montana. Yeah, we went down to Montana. Um, our first day uh, of shooting, which was the second day I was down there, was, um, had already been scheduled and it was set to be some filming um, from helicopter which for this particular production was kind of one of the most expensive days they had going. And so there was a lot kind of riding on getting good footage from it. And uh, it was also the first time that I was meeting the executive producer, who's uh, the person on site who's ultimately kind of responsible for um, coming home, uh, so to speak, with the, the actual product they need. So there's a lot of pressure on this person. And um, it was a pretty, pretty busy day and so I didn't really get a lot of chance to kind of introduce myself to him or meet him and so we're kind of jumping in with both feet uh, right away and the goal the goal of the day was to do some helicopter flights where they would film out of the helicopter so uh, kind of standard at the time was that uh, the camera operator uh, would be anchored in uh, with a redundant system. Um, and that was my job was to set that up and make sure that he was uh, rigged properly and ready to go. And I'm so we arrived early, um, got everything set. Yep, go ahead. Oh, well, I'm just going to explain to the listeners who aren't familiar. Redundant system is uh, what everything, every not, every piece of, um, of the uh, uh, rigging system is backed up. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, so it's not just one motion equals catastrophic failure. Right, exactly. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, uh, you know, all of that went as planned. Um, we arrived in plenty of time. I got the system set up for him. I, I rigged him up for multiple flights. Um, he would uh, lean out the door of the helicopter using his kind of seat belt as support, but but um, ultimately anchored in with the system that I had put on him. So he wore a chest harness and a waist, you know, and a, and a regular climbing harness. And um, they, uh, the goal of the show was to, or what they were really hoping was to spot some wildlife, um, and they didn't get that. Um, so they, they're kind of reformulate, reformulating and strategizing about that, and they decide to do a change of plans 
and um, what they're going to do is is uh, fly to another airport that gives them a chance to fly over some new terrain and maybe see some wildlife. And the rest of us will drive up and meet them there. And this, you know, this is really common on these shows where things are really dynamic. The plans are changing all the time, and they're trying to figure out how to make things work. Um, particularly with, like I said, the show was a pilot, so they're they're kind of figuring things out on the fly. And um, so. Uh, Betsy, for I, me, um, what I was really, yeah, go ahead. Is the cameraman redundant at this point? And um, are they flying with the doors open? Yeah, so the plan for this flight was that they would um, put some cast in the helicopter and film the cast in there talking, looking out the window, things like that. So they would fly entirely up to this next airport with the doors closed. Um, so no open door flying and, and uh, the camera operator, um, I would leave before they took off and the camera operator would not be rigged up. Um, so immediately it kind of sets off my alarms because, um, you know, my job on the production is to think about, um, you know, try to think ahead. So it's not just to be there in case something happens, but it's happening. So to, to manage these things and to try to manage these things in a way that it doesn't interrupt their filming, if at all possible. And um, basically to kind of facilitate things in a safe way for them. And, and because they are fully tasked, you know, the executive producer has, you know, the budget things in mind and planning and trying to deal with the story and trying to get everything to kind of come home together. And the camera operator, you know, their job is to get good footage and they don't, keep their job, they don't keep getting hired if they don't get the footage. And so every, and they're also looking through this little viewfinder, um, you know, so their view of the world is pretty limited and they're very focused and everybody's doing their job. Um, so, uh, you know, so I know that they don't have the broader perspective, the broader safety perspective at all times. And so my big concern was, what if they see the wildlife, which they're hoping to see? it's going to be so tempting to want to open the door because they feel like this footage is really important for the show. They'd been at the location um, prior to me coming on the job for a couple weeks and hadn't seen any wildlife. So this is something they're really wanting and they've been wanting for a while. Um, so I went and spoke with the, you know, that executive producer who's um, doing six things at the same time and I'm having a hard time getting his attention. Um, and I, uh, you know, I have no existing relationship with him. And I ask him, you know, I, I say, well, you know, if you guys see wildlife, are you going to want to open the door? And he's like, no, absolutely not. We're going to film with the doors closed. We are not going to open the doors. And I'm like, okay. Um, you know, my other concern was, um, you know, I was a little torn. There's just one of me. Uh, I don't, I wasn't working with anybody else. And the rest of the crew was going to be driving uh, to meet the helicopter. There would be a little bit of time pressure. There was only, you know, just enough time to get there. And, um, I'd only been there for a day at that point, but uh, we'd already seen that the cast um, was inclined to kind of speed and that was a little bit of an issue, um, you know, significantly over the speed limit on icy roads. Um, I'd already seen that and we were all supposed to caravan and follow them up there. So I had some legitimate concerns as well about the travel up um, because the conditions were really pretty bad. And so it was a little bit, I was like, which group should I be traveling with? Um, you know, the helicopter, you know, is, is definitely, you know, if they take the doors off and they're not, they're not set up for it, like that's a big concern. The vehicle, um, are they going to speed? Are they going to try to just keep up with the cast or are they going to talk on the radios and make them slow down? 
Um, so, um, you know, it was a little bit of a toss up, which, which place I should really be in that situation. And then, um, so we're there for another, another, you know, 45 minutes or something. And I'm still kind of, I'm still concerned about this. I'm still worrying that it's not really going to be what he's saying it's going to be. So I went, I had a chance to talk to him, that executive producer one more time. You know, I said, Hey, I can rig your camera operator um, before I leave and he can sit, you know, in the helicopter ready, but he else is positioned in relation to the door that's going to be opened and we can do it so that if you really need to, you can open the door. Um, and he says, no, we are absolutely not going to open the door. We don't want to do that. Um, we're all set. Go ahead and go ahead and leave so that you guys get there in time. Um, so, uh, you know, then I, when I'm finally on my way out the door, um, the executive producer is out there in the, in the parking lot as I'm heading for the car with the local producer. And I stop one more time and offer that solution one more time, just one more check-in. And he's getting a little tired of hearing from me at this point. He's like, no, 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 we're all good. Go ahead and get up there so that you guys are there on time. So uh, we all take off. Um, we arrive at the next airport um, just as the helicopter's landing. And um, we're walking out onto the tarmac just as they're getting out of the helicopter. And the crew that was in the helicopter, they're all pumped up. They're all excited. They're like, we saw wolves. We saw them. We got great footage. They're really excited. And I'm immediately like, my heart drops. And I'm like, did you guys open the doors? And they're like, yeah, we got the best footage. And I was really upset because I'm like, I made a really big mistake. I should have been in the helicopter. I should have insisted on having a seat in the helicopter and made them leave somebody else behind. And um, so I, you know, I raised my voice and said, you know, to this, to this producer, I said, you guys promised you weren't going to do that, that you did not need to be set up to open the doors. And for me, I'm not, I'm not a yeller. It, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of emotion for me to raise my voice. Um, so I wasn't screaming at them, but I was definitely had a raised voice and it was within earshot of cast because there's cast getting out of the helicopter and the producer kind of visibly blanches a little bit. And then he pulls me aside a few minutes later. It's like, that was really inappropriate. We don't want to do that in front of the cast. And I was like, well, yes, but I was really concerned about this. And I talked to you several times, like you assured me that you didn't need this. And this is a really big deal. He's like, it was really inappropriate. And I was like, yes, I'm sorry. And we move on, finish out the day. Um, when we get back to the housing in the evening, I have a chance to talk to the camera operator um, and I apologize to him for putting him in that situation because I felt terrible the whole time I'm thinking about like, you know, what could have happened. Um, and he shared with me um, that he had entirely forgotten that he wasn't still anchored in because oh, wow. he had done several flights um, prior to this where he was leaning on that system. And so uh, the way it worked is he would lean out on the seatbelt, um, but he had this, you know, this redundant system that he's anchored to behind that and his camera was anchored in. And um, he said, you know, just as I thought, you know, they saw the wildlife, the producer was like, open the door, open the door, get the shot. They open the door. He just is focused on those animals trying to get the shot, all the technical aspects of what he, of his job that he needs to do. And he forgot. And so he leaned out the door, just like he'd been doing. And he said, I didn't realize, I didn't remember I wasn't anchored in until the cast member who was sitting next to him reached over and grabbed his belt um, because he saw him leaning out the door and concerned. Um, and, um, you know, he, he did have a seatbelt on, um, but understand, you know, those seatbelts, it's the, the typical, you know, airline flap to close. Um, those, it takes one movement to open those. And I've, I've done it myself and I've seen it happen where when you turn, 
for instance, if you're holding a camera and you turn and your elbow is down, you hit that clip, it takes one movement to open. And like I said, I've actually done that. I've seen people do that. And people have fallen out of helicopters, filming out of helicopters. So um, yeah, he had the seatbelt on. He wasn't entirely unattached, but he was, it was a really risky situation and it was not what was supposed to happen. Um, so I felt terrible and I expressed that to him. I was like, I should not have let that happen. And he's like, oh, I was just focused. And I was like, I know that's your job. My job is to make sure that you're set up. And I didn't do my job there. And um, that executive producer came to me the next day, wanted to have a meeting because he was, you know, like I said, we're just starting this relationship out. There's always a lot of concern about, you know, safety potentially stepping on people's feet. Like they need to get their filming done. They need to do things and they don't want to be blocked on that. And there's, you know, there's always a little tension in the relationship. And um, so we all sat down, um, had, a, had a little meeting the next night. It was the executive producer, the local producer and myself. And, um, you know, what he wanted to drive home was that, you know, for me not to bring those things up in front of the cast and one of you know i think you really kind of make sure that i'm not going to be blocking his production and um you know my my goal was kind of the opposite i was like yeah we need to have this meeting um, because i didn't feel like he saw the situation for what it really was and um, i also wanted to assure him that i'm there really to kind of facilitate things for him and like establish that relationship as a good working relationship um, so, you know, just as, just as I you know, expected, you know, what he wanted to bring up first was that it was really inappropriate for me to raise my voice and vent these things in front of Cass. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry. I was like, but this was a really serious situation. I was like, you almost lost your camera operator. You know, I explained the seatbelt situation to him. I was like, this is all it takes for him to fall out. It was very close. Um, and at that point, uh, you know, it seemed like he he really realized it and he expressed um, a lot of concern about it. And, and uh, you know, it totally changed the tone of that meeting. And instead we were talking about um, this risk and how we had seen it and uh, what we were doing going forward. And, and I got the chance to talk, you know, about my perspective on the job, which is really that I'm trying to facilitate and set things up ahead of time so that they don't have an issue and they don't have any accidents. Um, and we went on to have a really positive relationship. I ended up uh, getting hired on for an extra month with this crew. So I worked with them for two months straight. We're all living together and working together. And um, I got hired on another job by another member of this crew and I uh, got called later by that same executive producer. So we ended, went on to have a really positive working relationship with, with a pretty rocky start there. That's a, uh, that's a great story. Betsy. Uh, this is Paul Tordock. Uh, we're on Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media, and we are talking um, about emotional intelligence with uh, Betsy Young just shared a fascinating story with us um, that we'll unpackage here um, after our uh, break. So stay with us and we'll come back uh, with uh, Dave McGivern and Bill, uh, Bill Meyer and Betsy Young and talk about uh, 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 how this story fits in to um, the concept of emotional intelligence in the outdoors. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org.
Welcome back to Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordak, and we are talking about emotional intelligence with uh, Bill Billmeyer, Betsy Young, and Dave McGibbon, and we're on Alaska Public Media. Bill, uh, let's talk. Why don't we have you uh, give your perspective of this uh, story that Betsy just told? Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, when I look at when I think about this story, I'm struck by kind of by the context um, that makes it interesting. Um, understand that these film crews, at least this one, um, it's a small group and they all get to work together all the time. So they're a very tight group. So coming in um, to any tight group as an outsider is difficult, but coming in as an outsider who's also in charge of safety can be really difficult. So um, what strikes me is how much this situation could have been um, detrimental to group development or it could it ended up being a, a big advantage to group development, uh, but that's not by accident. I think the default would be for people to overreact and then kind of misunderstand each other and miscommunicate, and then that would just make the work that much more difficult. So um, thinking about it in terms of emotional intelligence, um, starting with self-awareness, um, I see self-awareness as giving Betsy the confidence to stand up to the executive producer, somebody who's very powerful in the show. Um, again, I, I think it would be easy to lose that, especially when the, the guy's acting dismayed and he is in charge of a lot and he does wield a lot of power. Um, but having that poise to kind of remind them what the stakes were, um, would you say that makes sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Cause that's, that's not something that is very easy for me to do. Like I tend to be a little bit more reserved person and it's, uh, it's challenging, uh, to kind of do that. So I have to, um, I have to think it through and, and make sure that I'm not stepping back from things like that, that I should. And, and also letting a little bit of anger come out when it was appropriate, because I felt like it was appropriate at that time. And it was important to kind of impress, uh, impress upon the, what the seriousness of the situation. You know what? And I also, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Is that, um, you know, these elements of emotional intelligence, especially self-awareness, it would be easy to pin that only on the helicopter crew and say, oh, you know, you folks are a bunch of idiots, you know, because you open the doors. But actually, you know, Betsy has to step up and internalize the situation from her own frame of reference. And, you know, she has to exhibit quite a bit of self-control and uh, quite a bit of uh, self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And I see one more time where self-awareness is applied is um, setting the tone day one. I think this was day two when this happened, right? Yeah. Although but, it was the first day with the executive producer. So it, I think it would have been easy, like when people make introductions, it's really easy to kind of come across overbearing. Like it's a tightrope. You want to establish motifides with the group. So I don't think you're some foolish person there for no reason. But it's also easy to kind of overdo it. And I've noticed that um, a lot of mountain guides or outdoor guide types going into different industries is you kind of overfocus on your outdoor accomplishments um, when generally other heads of department who aren't outdoor um, guides or instructors don't really care that much. Um, so coming across as, as honest and straightforward and just wanting to do a good job versus coming across as some person who's climbed this or done this or done that. Um, coming across as straightforward kind of will break down the barriers that people will try to apply to it. But if you come across overbearing, it kind of sets people on edge and sets them back on their heels a little bit. 
which isn't good for a group uh, group dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's always a balancing act. Like you, you know, when when I'm going in or when any of us are going in, it's like you want people to understand that you have the experience to do the job and and that you want them to trust you, trust that you have enough experience. But you um, want to make sure you know you don't want to be so overbearing that um, they they don't feel like you are crediting them with the experience in their jobs um, because you know, that's important. It's important to people that they're respected. And so if you focus too much on your own accomplishments, like one, it's not that relevant to the job at hand usually. And two, it, it makes people feel disrespected because they have a lot of qualifications as well. And Bill, what other parts of emotional intelligence do, does this story, um, when you think about the story, can you relate to? Uh, and another one is self-regulation, and this is something that um, is also easy, to, very easy to overdo. Is um, again, self-regulation just means when Betsy was getting angry, when she presented with the knowledge that people had um, very realistically had a, a close call um, with the fatality. It's, it's hard to fall out of a helicopter and get injured, um, is my understanding. Um, is showing. Anger, I think, was appropriate at this at this time. And again, it's not a tool like it's I would if I put myself in her shoes, I would get angry right away and I'd have to regulate myself. It's not like I'm using anger as a tool out of nowhere. It's more like I would get angry because it was very dangerous. And then I have to walk it back and keep it from being a destructive process. But I think um, what Betsy did was show enough anger, but then was able to regulate herself enough where it became a tool. She didn't overdo it, but everybody got the point that it was really serious and very quickly understood um, that it wasn't a small deal, it was a big deal. You know, if you've built those relationships in advance, then um, anger, even though um, it's an uncomfortable emotion, uh, but if you've, if you've built those relationships in advance, then um, showing some anger, showing some disappointment in the uh, people around you, uh, you know, that it works to a certain degree, but it depends on having already established relationships with uh, people that you're working with. Yeah, and it seems to me that it has to be thought out. I don't know, Betsy, did you, in this example, <laughs> did you think about your response? Were you able to put your thoughts together? Um, you know, I was concerned. I mean, so as you know, that was the reason that I, I spoke to that producer, you know, three different times and kind of extracted a promise from him that they didn't need that rigging, that they weren't going to open the doors of the helicopter. Um, you know, I was worried. So I, I was a little primed for it. Um, but I wouldn't say, um, I don't know that I really thought it I thought it through particularly consciously. I mean, I'm not uh, generally a person that raises their voice very much. And um, so, so for me, uh, it was really, um, that's not something I have to regulate so much. It's like, I have to, I have to make an effort to make sure that I communicate and that I, that I don't, um, let myself kind of sidestep out of those important conversations. And in this case, without that existing relationship, it meant that we needed to, you know, needed to talk about things right away. Yeah. Let's continue on this bill. What else, what are the other parts of emotional intelligence that um, are relevant here? Um, I see um, empathy as being a tremendous uh, constructive thing that came out of this. Like um, Betsy went right to 
Well, it helped on two levels. Betsy went right to the camera people, um, the camera person who had leaned out of the helicopter and just showed real concern and just real empathy for their situation. Be like, I know you're a camera guy, you got to get the shots, but that was really dangerous. And he was like, oh my goodness, you're right. That, I didn't want to do that. You know, he wasn't aware of it, but just going right there and showing that she just cared about his safety. Like it wasn't that she would have gotten in trouble, although, you know, you know, there would be a lot of downstream problems, but first and foremost, she was just concerned for his safety, which is hard to, to come across in the safety role. Sometimes people fear that you're going to be just the box checker or the um, person who wants to wield authority. Um, so if you can convince them that you care, then you're going to break down a whole lot of barriers. Yeah. And I, I think in that situation, like, you know, um, for me, it's, you know, the, we all have our, our own, you know, things that we have to work on in our personalities for me uh, you know i i need to i have to make take an effort to kind of speak up take an effort to maintain that communication and um but in this situation i think it would be easy to uh, put the blame on that producer who i extracted a promise from three three times you know that they weren't going to do this to blame all of that on him when really um you know it was my job to kind of set the situation up so that they had all the options they needed and i knew that they were going to be focused on their jobs and so it's you know i knew that he wasn't doing it to undercut me he wasn't doing it to um, put his crew at risk um, he was doing it because he was focused on his job in the moment and that's the reason that i was there is because you can't do all of those things at once and um so really you know, there's things that I would do differently. And one of them is really just to set it up and, you know, not to focus on trying to get him to tell me he wasn't going to do it, but focus on setting it up. So he had all the options that he might want, which opening the door was one of them. Um, and as we go down this list of um, emotional intelligence, sort of the traits of, um, I also, what else do we have? Uh, we have relationship management which I think was the last one. And I see that, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I see the relationship management as, you know, this is Betsy's day two and she went on to work for two months. Um, so I think keeping the greater picture that, um, that by doing all these things, doing all the emotional, uh, emotional intelligence that leads to the group dynamics, which lead to a successful job, um, is being persuasive and, and being empathetic. Go ahead, Dave. Because, um, you know, Betsy, you sort of, you understood that the film crew, you'd seen it before, um, you know, that these people are going to want to get the shot. And uh, that prompted you to, uh, you know, tell the pilot three different times, you know, don't open the doors because people aren't rigged for that event. But, um, you know, for your, perspective and under the, you know, um, aegis of empathy. Um, it's hard not to imagine the film crew wanting to get a shot, um, abandoning their self-control and throwing open the doors and somebody leaning out to get the shot. And then of course, falling out of the airplane when they dislodge their safety apparatus. That's um, that's great. Uh, this is uh, Paul Tordak, and uh, we're on Outdoor Explorer talking about emotional intelligence, and we'll um, be right back after a quick break. All 
right, welcome back. Uh, we're talking about emotional intelligence. Uh, we just have heard a great story about um, from Betsy Young about uh, managing risk in a, a helicopter of a, a shoot for a TV um, uh, show. Um, let's talk a little bit about and thinking about reflecting on that story. Uh, what are the most important parts of emotional intelligence? As Dave taught at the beginning of the show, we have self-awareness, self-regulation, um, motivations, and uh, uh, social type skills. Dave, when you hear this story, like what do you think is the most important of these um, attributes of emotional intelligence? Well, I um, am reminded of my own experiences in the field, and uh, I've worked with all three of you in the field, and um, I was aware uh, that the most important thing for me was relationship management because I know myself pretty well. And I know that I can be inattentive, that I can't make all the right decisions by myself, and that I depend on the other instructors that I'm working with. And so building that relationship is uh, very important. You know, I would sometimes go out in the cold and the rain and cook breakfast and bring it inside the tent for the other instructors, you know, hot coffee. Um, I had a couple of special meals that I make. And of course, this was completely against the rules, bear camping, but I wanted to spoil them because I wanted to cultivate their relationship. I wanted them to know that I appreciated the hard work they were doing, but mostly what I needed was their unfiltered input in order for the course to operate. Uh, different managers have different ways of achieving that sort of relationship management. Um, I'm aware of um, one um, outfitter in Talkeetna who prioritizes instructor satisfaction. And uh, he makes a big deal out of that. Uh, and the reason that he does is that because he wants these people to follow his protocols when they're in the field and out of his sight. And so he feels like, okay, if they're satisfied working for me, then maybe they'll actually do what I want them to do in the field. It's a very um, thoughtful but effective strategy. So uh, relationship management in Bessie's case is, is, comes, stands out to me as the highlight. However, relationship management is um, almost impossible with people who uh, are not self-aware they don't have self-control, and that's your ego. Um, and uh, you know, the first thing that everybody on a team needs to check at the door is their ego. But unfortunately, um, that doesn't always happen. Nevertheless, uh, you know, you can sort of get through there uh, in a in the back door by um, cultivating team and developing trust. And uh, Betsy, of course, you know, she was new on the site and didn't have a chance to do that. And so she's trying to make her point without having first been able to um, cultivate a relationship. Now, uh, as she said in her story, um, she got offered more work. She liked working for these people. They all got along later. Well, that's because um, she cultivated a relationship. Now, the other people, also cultivated a relationship with Betsy. And um, that's important to recognize. But it's, you know, it's a little tricky and it's not just, it's not as easy as we, you know, make it out to be. You know, um, me sneaking up to the tent in the rain, trying to hide the breakfast that I'm gonna serve from the other students, um, just because I want the people that I'm working with to feel like they know me, 
and they can say, hey, Dave, I don't think we should do that. That's really um, what relationship management is all about. I'll bet they enjoyed the meals, though. <laughs> I think that uh, somebody uh, that uh, it might have been uh, people that we know, uh, when I opened the tent door and it became apparent that I had thermoses full of hot coffee and a huge pot, you know, of uh, breakfast, they said, you're an angel. <laughs> oh. I know myself well enough to understand that I am not an angel. Um, and kind of one, one, thing, one thing I take out of this particular example is, like, again, the, these jobs that we work on are extremely variable. You don't always, sometimes you only work the job for two days and you don't meet anybody till the morning of. So your ability to um, use these EI tools is relative to the job. Um, uh, but this one I saw, like, what set off Betsy's red flags um, about putting the crew into the helicopter by themselves was based on the understanding of how people react when they get all excited. Um, so I saw that as like the practical thing that lets you look around corners in terms of managing other people in uh, dynamic environments. That's yeah, and go ahead, Betsy. I was to say for me, like it, you know, it was a really uh, you know it was a good learning experience. It's you know, there's there's definitely things I would do differently. For instance, um, you know using the helicopter pilot as an asset, you know, if, if that was the decision they made, um, you know, having that backed up by the helicopter pilot, but he wasn't part of the conversation. He was doing his job and I didn't talk with him about it. So he wasn't aware that the camera operator was not clipped in. And, um, you know, on the other side, you know, my focus in talking with that executive producer was really on like what he wanted to do. And really um, there's more that I could do to think about you know what's ahead for him and what he's going to want to do and 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 facilitate that versus really just kind of trying to get a promise out of him that he's not going to do something that really you know if the shot was good enough he really should be able to do so setting it up so that he was able to do that so i think you know i would not approach this that situation in the same way in the future i was going to say also the um and it's related to what Dave said about checking your ego at the door. I think in this one, it's what Betsy did was just to again admit her own culpability in this. And I think that goes a long way to break down. I think ego can put you in a spot where you can't admit fault. And there's a tons of downstream effects from that. But if you lead by saying, well, I didn't do a good job. I'm worried about your safety. That's something that it's really hard to get people to believe that you care about them. Um, outside of the requirements of the job. But if they believe that you care about them enough where you really want them to be safe and do their job, then they'll love you for it. And they will try to work with you for the rest of your career. Because um, it's rare, I think, to find that. Yeah, and yeah. I think, oops, sorry. No, go ahead, Betsy. Um, I think that at this point, we've mentioned the word ego a couple of times and um, I think it, it can be hard sometimes, especially, you know, in the outdoor industry, which which can, you know, in certain aspects tend to really value like kind of a, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like a little bit of a, a, a macho approach to things where it's, it's all about your skill and how good you are at things. Um, it can be a little bit of a trap where it's hard to admit that you're fallible and it's hard to admit that you make mistakes. And, you know, that, that ability um, can shortcut your, your, 
ability to develop relationships and establish relationships if you can't admit that you make mistakes. And it also really shortcuts your ability to learn from those mistakes if you can't even admit that they're there. And, um, you know, this situation, um, you know, is something that if if we hadn't addressed it, you know, very upfront and clearly it's something that could have easily just kind of gotten brushed under the rug and never really discussed again, um, which wouldn't have been very helpful to any of the parties involved. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, uh, super helpful. I was thinking um, a, a, uh, the listeners might hear another voice on the um, broadcast. Uh, Betsy and Bill have a young uh, son named Cormac. Welcome, Cormac. But I'm, I'm curious about a as a family, um, how you manage. And you live in a very remote place. Um, how do you apply these lessons to your lives? Um, as a team. <laughs> I think one of the big ones that I am constantly reminding myself, I go back to like the, um, you know, like knowing yourself and, and uh, which, which I think is where, you know, a lot of these, these decision-making heuristics apply, um, which is, it's really easy. We, we live in this location. We've lived here for um, 11 or 12 years at this point. And it's, it's very easy to get kind of complacent about the challenges here. Um, you know, like I, I was, I was pregnant through last summer and, um, we don't usually see, we know that there's bears around, but we, I've gone years without seeing a bear here. And, uh, we had a bunch of issues with bears this summer and it's got, it had me thinking because I'm walking around with, you know, carrying Cormac, um, it had me thinking about, you know, having him as a small child. It's like, well, I'm not really going to want to leave him unattended next to the house because I just had a bear right outside the house like five times this summer and that's just the times we saw the bear um you know it's, it's really easy to get really comfortable and very complacent with the hazards that you objectively know are there so there's kind of this tension between you know uh, objective hazard or objective reality and um you know what's going on in your head and how you feel about the situation and that's something to always be checking in on and uh, i think that's the one that that really applies for me to you know, to where we live. Yeah, I think um, that complacency, I think about your story about the helicopter where, you know, they're not gonna open the door, um, but then they got so excited about an objective that is filming wildlife that they forget or ignore not to open the door and how common that is, um, not just complacency, but sort of being focused on an objective. Um, and also, especially when the objective has been elusive, that um, you sort of um, become complacent about safety. And uh, whether it's a big powder day screen or uh, a peak ascent or a river you're gonna run that might be a little high um, or uh, an ocean that uh, maybe a storm's brewing. So there's all kinds of lessons that, uh, what, uh, uh, that, that this story can apply to. Um, yeah, when, I think- Yeah, yeah go ahead, Betsy. I think you just always have to be checking back in and kind of balancing, uh, you know, the objective risk, which which doesn't change as your um, investment in your goal changes. Your investment in your goal may increase, but the objective hazard remains the same. And you always have to kind of keep checking back in and see where that balance is at because it's easy to forget. Now, all three of you have are tremendous resumes, outdoor resumes, uh, Denali guides, uh, Dave. Um, you're on a winter ascent of Saint Elias, I believe. 
that went um, yeah. went uh, went a uh, uh, crazy. Um, talk about some of those experiences <laughs> and how your group made it through it. And Dave, let's talk about uh, maybe that St. Elias, if you want, or another story oh. that you have. Yeah. I'll give you an example of uh, John Bauman, Leo Americus, and I descending from St. Elias. And on probably day 20, something like that, after we'd gotten 32 feet of snow. That's and, 32 uh, feet of snow. I want to make. We're yeah. trying to. Uh, I'm going to repeat feet that. Snow, 32 yeah. feet of snow. Wow. Yakutat, yeah. Yakutat got 17 inches of rain. Um, so uh, we're descending, we're roped up, and uh, John his Bauman is in the lead and he disappears into the fog. And uh, Leo is in the back. Leo's a surveyor and super savvy terrain guy. I mean, he understands what's around him all the time. He stops. I'm in the middle. The rope is tight now. It's tight from me to Leo in the back and it's tight from me to John. John hollers out out of the fog. Hey, what's the problem? You know, and Leo hollers out from the back. I'm not moving. And there we were uh, in the middle of this, uh, and we had to sort it out. And then um, Bauman, who you know many people in the audience will know, and who's a very respected outdoorsman and climber and boater in the Alaska community, hollers out, "Dave, you solve it." And uh, I said, uh, "You know, we're going to stop." And we reeled John in, and we reeled Leo into me, and the. Uh, and Leo says, reaches out to John, apologizes for raising a stink. And uh, Bauman says, um, this is why we have three of us along on this trip, you know, so that we have a third person um, who can facilitate, who uh, can sort of see a way out of this and um, who can manage the relationship at this moment, which is fraught with tension. Uh, so, however, you know, for that to work, both Leo and John have to be willing to check their egos at the door. And um, it was fairly tense, but those two guys um, were very quick to put their own needs aside. And uh, we dug in right there and waited for the fog to clear. That's a great story. Bill and Betsy, any uh, lessons, other lessons you want to share um, in regards to this idea of emotional intelligence and you know, the outdoors risk management decision making? Um, I'm, I guess I'm having trouble thinking of like particular examples, but I know that, um, yeah, that, that I, I've definitely made mistakes when I kind of jumped, jumped to conclusions or, um, you know, didn't didn't kind of didn't make the effort to kind of consider all sides of things. Um, I, I did have an experience um, with a, a group where we uh, had a group of beginners, uh, beginner students out in the Talkeetna Mountains and we um, experienced temperatures probably approaching 50 below. Um, the first day of our trip was uh, in, the, in the low 20s. So um, we had a change in a, in a few days uh, with a really drastic temperature drop. And, um, you know, there, you know, I definitely made mistakes on that trip, but um, the thing, the reason that trip sticks in my mind um, is uh, because the lesson that I learned um, really effectively from that, um, because we had um, such a, such a challenging situation, you know, in the cold, 
you know, even just operating your stove, trying to get, you know, trying to cook food, it becomes really, really challenging, keeping the stoves running, keeping everything running and being able to keep the whole group warm, you know, people with all different needs. And uh, our group was able to really pull together. We had a, a wood stove um, tent and it's something that, you know, the first time you set it up, it can take like an hour to set up. We were able to um, set that thing up, roll into camp, have that thing running, pumping out heat within, you know, like 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, because our group really pulled together and worked together. And I think it, it's easy for those things to fall apart. And I could see where that could happen. Um, but we were able to kind of build all that trust. And aside from, you know, from things that I would change about the way that the way that I handled that trip and the way that that trip worked, um, that ability of the group to kind of pull together and the trust that people had in each other and being able to take the people that had uh, the strengths to do that um, is really why we were able to kind of get through it um, without uh, really serious injuries to people because it had a very, very real risk of that. Great. Um, this has been Outdoor Explorer. I'm Paul Tordak, your host. Uh, we've been talking about emotional intelligence. I've had Dave McGivern, Bill Billmeyer, and Betsy Young. On that note, um, we're going to wrap this show up. I, I would say that that story that Betsy told about the minus temperatures, we are looking forward to interviewing um, Emma Walker, who's written a book about lessons learned, and she was on that course. Um, so we're looking forward to hearing that in the near future. Thank you all three for uh, being with us today. All right. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks for listening. And to Betsy Young, Bill Bamar, and David McGivern for joining us. Finally, thanks to our producer, Eric Bort. This is your host, Paul Tordach, and from all the hosts at Outdoor Explorer, be safe and play nice, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, The Man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.